so much, worship team. Chris, you you appreciate your worship team this morning and the way that they shepherd our hearts and and enjoying God and being called to a deeper, more intimate walk with Him. And uh, I I find myself getting lost in the lyrics as we meditate just on what it means to love God, to rejoice in His mercy, to, to rest in His power. He's a mighty warrior fighting those battles for us. It's an amazing reality that we can connect with as believers, and we are so immensely grateful for that. You know, I'm really excited to be with you all this morning. This is a big day for us, um, and a big day for you all as well. And uh, I brought my family with me this time. I realized after I left last week, um, somebody, I, I can't remember who it was, but they said, you know what, you told us all about you, Mike, but you didn't give us any information at all about your wife and all of your kids. And I'm like, oh my goodness. But you know what, I'm not going to embarrass them this morning, but I am so grateful to have them all with me. Um, my wife, Lori Ann, for those of you who haven't met her, we've been married for 17 years, and it has just been an absolute joy uh, to be married uh, to uh, your best friend. I mean, we just have so much fun together, and, and life is a joy. We have a ball camping and outdoor activities. And the biggest thing that I really enjoy about my wife is, is just her, her passion to keep my kids motivated and pursuing the things that matter in life. And I'm just so immensely grateful to have a partner in ministry and uh, someone who's on fire for Jesus and loves people. And I'm just so grateful for that. My kids, Ethan is my 13-year-old. Uh, he's with us right now. My other, my youngest two are in children's church, um, but uh, so grateful for him. He's my, my engineering brain. Um, he loves the, the math and sciences and he's He's a very critical thinker, and I'm very blessed to have that in my home most times. Um, Lincoln, Lincoln is, is 10 years old, and he's going to be joining you too next year. So uh, Lincoln is my, my silly boy. Um, see, there, there's, there are two people in my house that get my random, weird sense of humor, Lincoln, and then his youngest sister, Avery. They, they giggle over silly things like you wouldn't believe. It's just, it's a lot of fun. So Lincoln's a joy that has a real tender heart. Uh, for running after God. Uh, Sydney is my eight-year-old. She's my little gymnast. And uh, we're so, so grateful for, for Sydney. And then Avery is my youngest, she's six. Um, so uh, we're happy to be here, excited to be opening God's Word with you. And uh, uh, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. So if you want to take a minute, turn to Isaiah chapter 36. And while you're doing that, I just want to share with you uh, a brief story as we get into the word this morning. Isaiah chapter 36. So by 1942, Robert Jock McLaren, he'd already escaped from a prison camp in Singapore. He fought for weeks with local guerrillas, then betrayed to the Japanese by a double-crossing comrade, and then interned in a high-security prison camp in Borneo. Books have been written about much less, but McLaren is just getting started. McLaren had been a teenage cavalryman during the First World War before integrating to Australia and settling down to a quiet life in Queensland. When the Second World War broke out, this middle-aged veterinarian was one of the first to sign up. He was excited. He was ready to join. You know, captured... So he, his middle-aged veterinarian was one of the first to sign up, captured by the Japanese after the fall of Malaya. McLaren staged his first break house from Singapore's notorious Shenzhen prison. 
His recapture didn't dent his determination to escape. The move to Borneo just meant that he was that much closer to home. He quickly teamed up with someone as determined to escape as he was, a local Chinaman known as Johnny Funk, who had been brutally tortured by the Japanese. Together, Jock and Johnny broke out of prison, and they trekked to the coast. They then island hopped for 430 kilometers across the Pacific Ocean in a hollowed-out log, fighting running battles with the Japanese along the way before landing safely on the Philippine island of Mindanao. Unfortunately, this island had already fallen to the Japanese, and McLaren had developed an acute appendicitis. Haunted by the Japanese and with no way to reach a doctor, McLaren had to make a desperate decision. Get a mirror, a sharp pocket knife, and some jungle fibers to stitch the wound, and absolutely no anesthetic. He was going to have to take the appendix out himself. The operation took four and a half hours. Can you imagine that? Years later, when receiving the military cross, McLaren was asked about this operation. His answer was predictably laconic. It was hell, he said. But I came through it all right. Two days after surgery, McLaren was on his feet, fleeing the Japanese once again. He spent the rest of the war as a guerrilla in the Philippines, most of it in command of an old whaling boat. He packed this boat full of mortars and machine guns, and he used it to sail into heavily guarded Japanese ports, spraying bullets everywhere, and then running for it before anyone could work out what was going on. Despite the huge rewards, he was never caught, possibly because everyone was terrified of this notorious rebel leader who was known to leave his severed appendices in his wake. Insurmountable odds, right? Jack McLaren should not have made it. When you look at the events of this story, you see the way things unfolded. McLaren was, was, was in a situation, a desperate situation, that should have led to his death. Yet, in the midst of such odds, through determination, hard work, and intense, immense intestinal fortitude, he lived to tell the tale. You know, as we move on in our time this morning, we're going to look at a battered king who faced his own insurmountable odds. And as we look at this amazing story in the text this morning, we're going to see first, we're going to see this, this story unfold in three key phases. We're going to first see an impossible situation. Then we're going to see a desperate king. And then lastly, we're going to see a miraculous intervention. Let's begin by looking at the impossible situation. Isaiah chapter 36. Isaiah chapter 36. Starting in, starting in verse 1, Isaiah records this. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the red sacrifice from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washing field, and there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the reporter. The Reb Shachah said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and powerful war? 
In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hands of any man who leans on it. Such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has moved? Saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses. If you are able on your part to set riders on them, I'll give you the horses if you can come up with the people. Moreover, it is, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up to this land, against this land, and destroy it. So the story is set in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, which puts it around 701 B.C. And Hezekiah, for those of you who don't know, was, was the leader. He was the king of the southern tribe of Judah. He came to power on the heels of his father Ahab. And the scripture records in 2 Kings 16, for sake of time, we're not going to turn there. But it states that Hezekiah inherited a mess. In fact, when Ahaz came to power, he was 20 years old. And the scripture says in 2 Kings that he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Rather, it says that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now, this was not a compliment for a king. For the kings of Israel, the northern tribes, the ten tribes, they, they, they walked contrary to the ways of God. They pursued their ways instead of God's ways. They embraced the idolatry of the pagan nations. They adopted practices that were contrary to God's law. And Ahaz was no different. It says in the scriptures that he burned his son, as was regular practice among the despicable nations of the region. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, in the worship of Moloch, the god of the Moabites. What's more is he sacrificed to the gods of the region, and he directed his people to do the same. He was directly responsible for cultivating, for cultivating a heart of faithlessness among the people of Judah, among the people that he was called to lead and called to shepherd. He was a mess. He was a train wreck of a leader. Ahaz was not a good king. Hezekiah did not come from God-fearing stock. In fact, some might even say that the outlook was not all that good for Hezekiah as he stepped into power. The odds were stacked against him. Gad is a joke. That's what he said. All that to say, fortunately, in the case of young Hezekiah, the apple fell so far from the tree. That truth didn't repeat itself in Hezekiah's life. Praise God for that, right? A grace took over in Hezekiah's life. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He removed the high places of false worship that his father had established. He broke down the pillars. He cut down the Asherah poles. For those of you who aren't aware, it was, it was, it was regular practice among, among these pagan nations. They, they would engage in immorality in these groves as a means of exciting the gods, which would bring fertility to the land. And this was something that was despicable. Hezekiah said, not, not so in this nation that I have been called to lead. He, he cut them down. He trusted in the Lord his God. Against insurmountable odds, grace reigned in the heart of this young leader. And after 14 years of doing the right thing, 
his resilience was about to be put to the ultimate test. The scripture says in the 14th year of his reign, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, moves in. The, the Assyrian army came up against the fortified cities and captured them. They took them. They defeated the military of Judah. The king sent the Rebshakeh, the spokesman for the king, along with the king's three highest officials, along with a considerable army to deliver a message to this battered king. There must have seemed to be a seemingly impossible situation for the king. The Assyrians had just been taken. And now the enemy, not just any enemy, the Assyrian army is on your doorstep. You would imagine. Imagine how he must have felt in the midst of that difficulty. Imagine what must have been going through his heart. Exhausted, beaten down, defeated, helpless, hopeless. What could I possibly do? In this situation, this sucks. Have you ever found yourself in a similar situation in life? Life stacked against you. Perhaps for you, it's parenting issues. Maybe in the midst of those teenage years, and you're scratching your head and saying, God, wait a second, I still go to hell. This is awful. Every day is a battle, and I'm fighting, God, and it is so frustrating, and I can't see the end. I'm exhausted, I'm beaten down, I'm worn out. Maybe it's you with marital struggles. Maybe couples get really good at getting on each other, but you know, if you get behind closed doors and things can be very difficult. Maybe there's battles with intimacy. Maybe there's battles with relationships. Maybe you've grown apart over the years. Maybe you're at a place where you're starting to use the forbidden B word. You can imagine. Your relationship is on an ongoing struggle. Maybe it's ministry fatigue. Maybe you've been driving so hard at ministry and getting so involved and so committed that your heart is drifting further and further away from the God that should be mobilizing you in your life. You burn it out. You wear them down. I feel like I've been grinding it out for all of my Christian life, but what do I have to show for it? Let's see. Maybe for you it's enemies of a different sort. Maybe for you it's chronic battles with sin. Maybe it's wrestling with God over his will for your life. You're feeling him nudging you, but you're saying, I can't do that. That's too much. God, do you want me to go to my neighbors? Are you kidding me? Do you realize how awkward that is, God? I've lived here for 15 years and I've never once darkened their doors. And God is saying, embrace the awkward. Walk, about, walk into that space and say, you know what, I'm so sorry. I've lived here for so long and I have failed as a neighbor. Take the right to do something. Maybe it's wrestling with God. Maybe it's feelings of inadequacy. God, how can you possibly use me to accomplish your mission? Me? Live a gospel life? Really, God? You know, the enemy's pressing in. He's taken the fortified cities of Israel. And what is he looking to do? He wants to destroy any hope of Israel. He wants to crush you. He wants to root out any thread of hope that exists in your heart. And what does he do in Hezekiah's case? So what, what does the Reb Shekah and, and the king's mighty men do in Hezekiah's case? Well, he begins by laying siege to the object of his faith. What are you placing your faith in? Mere words? Verse 4. Do you think that mere words are strategy and policy war? You talk a big talk, Hezekiah. You say all the right things. But what are your words? You know what, man? Your, your mouth is writing checks, but your body isn't ready to cash. I am going to see 
smooth down. Are you kidding me? You're trusting in your words. You're trusting in your allies. Egypt, verse 6. You're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of any person who leans on it. Are you kidding? Do you think your allies are going to come to your aid? You're trusting in the Lord your God, verse 7. Is it not he whose altars you tore down? You see, he, he misunderstood Hezekiah's devotion. Hezekiah ripped down those altars because the people's hearts were moving further and further away from God. And he wanted to see them embrace God with all of their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind. He's attacking his faith. The armies of Judah, verse 8, come now. Make a wager with me, man. I will give you 2,000 horses. Dude, I'm going to give you the weapons. If you can muster the men to wield them. Are you kidding me? You don't stand a chance, man. We just trust you. Do you see what he did to your fortified cities? You are going down. This is trash talk of the worst sort. You know, I love to play basketball. And occasionally we get situations where you run your mouth like a fool. Talking down to that other person who's just playing a game. You have nothing. You're going down. You know, as, as, as the Reb's chapter is, is engaging with, with Hezekiah, as if he's saying, you have nothing. No one's going to come to your aid. Your faith is senseless. Your resources are spent. Your allies are gone. Give up now. Judah, you're on your own. Sound familiar? Have you ever found yourself sitting at the feet of the accuser? Listening as poison spills from his lips and infects your fragile heart. Give up. What is the use? I imagine the people quaked in spirit. In fact, when Eliakim and Shebna and Joel heard these words in verse 11, they spoke to the Reb Shack and they asked, they asked if he could speak in Aramaic. See, the commoners didn't understand Aramaic. He said, could you speak in Aramaic? Could you please speak in a different language? We're struggling with people. So that he wouldn't trouble the hearts of the commoners. Did he listen? Well, he heard them loud and clear. He took his verbal jousting to a whole new level. He raised his voice to address all who were in earshot. He wanted them to know you are doomed. This isn't going to end well for you. You are doomed to eat your own refuse. Your king will not be able to deliver you. Verse 14. Your God has abandoned you. Verse 15. There is only one way that you can escape this perilous fate, and that is bow the knee to the king of Assyria. Swear allegiance and you will live, verse 17. Has any God ever delivered a nation from the hand of the king of Assyria? They have a reputation for destruction and fierceness. When you read what this nation did to the other nations, it's unbelievable. It's revolting. Their stomachs turned the way that they swept in and they conquered in the most brutal ways possible. Verse 19, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad, these nations? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? The scripture records in verse 21. Keep it listening. Bitter accusation. When you face insurmountable odds, 
Verse 6 was changed to verse 22. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household and seven of his secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, who was clothed, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn. And they told him the words of the red sepulchre. As soon as the king, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he rent his clothes, he tore his clothes, he covered himself in sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and seven of his secretary, and two of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. This was, by all human measurements, an impossible situation. One in which, apart from supernatural intervention, the people of Judah were doomed. This was not going to end well. The king knew this. The people knew this. You know, maybe this scene describes you this morning. Maybe this is precisely the baggage that you bring with you into worship. He knows the inadequacy. God, I can't do this. But do you? Feelings of insecurity. God, I know you say your eye is on the sparrow. I know you say the, the very hairs on my balding head are numbered. for 14 years, and why does it feel like I'm getting kicked in the butt? Maybe feelings of hopelessness. God, I'm not actually better situation. Maybe love of sin. Maybe it's relational guilt. Maybe it's feelings of hopelessness. This has been my story, the story of my life, and nothing is going to change. Why bother with wasted effort? Perhaps as you enter worship this morning, regardless of your lack of love and peace, you need encouragement and vision help and bring your story. Like the broken family in its fragile story, who had just endured a bitter word of discipleship that seemed so hopeless. Where do we turn in the face of insurmountable odds? To whom do we run? Well, Hezekiah sends word to Isaiah. He sends word to Isaiah, and the scriptures record, he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shevna, the secretary, the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the red sepulchre, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God. And will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayers to the remnant that is left. You know what I love here? Hezekiah reaches out to the middle class. They're struggling here, man. This is a day of rebuke, of, of distress, of shame for the nation of Judah. We're beaten down. We're on the brink of despair. Isaiah, we need you. We need you now. I love that. Hezekiah recognized that amid this gut-wrenching situation, he didn't need his generals, he didn't need his advisors, nor did he seek someone to commiserate with him in his grief. He wasn't running to his allies. No, he sought for the counsel of the one person whose heart was anchored in truth. You know, when, when life is heavy, where do we run? Where do we turn? Do we find ourselves gravitating towards peace seekers? Or do we find ourselves moving towards those who will commiserate with us in our grief? We go scrambling for allies. You know, my wife and I have traveled through some pretty tough stuff in life. 
And I got to say that some of my most disorienting in life come when, when I start scrambling for allies. And I fail to reach out to those who have a heart to direct my heart back to God. Hezekiah recognized what he needed in this moment. He pursued it straight away. And as Isaiah responded in chapter 37, we find his words recorded in verse 6. Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword from his own mouth. Imagine what these words must have brought Isaiah to comfort, right? Don't be afraid. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. Isaiah got it, or Hezekiah got it. As the Rabshakeh returns to the king of Assyria in verse 8, he finds that the king is fighting against Libya. For he had heard that the king had left Lachish. This is the prophet's job. And his, his attention is beginning to shift to Cush in the south. The Rabshakeh says, you know what, I'm going to send word back to Hezekiah. I'm not done with him. His faith is about to be put to the ultimate test. And we see his message recorded in verse 9. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard that you heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all of the lands devoting them to destruction. Shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Dozen, Haran, Reza, the people of Eden, who are in Palestine? Where is the king of Hamath? The king of Arpad? The king of the city of Shephavim? The king of Hena? Or the king of Iva? Hezekiah, you're doomed. Your fate is inevitable. The situation must have seemed impossible. This is quite possibly the most brutal nation in all of human history, and they have their sights set on us. What would you do? What would you do? Would you abandon ship at that point? Think you'd move to plan B? Would you keep your heart anchored in God's truth? God, you couldn't have possibly meant for life to be this way. I'm just sick. I'm not sure that I can bear this much life. God, if you don't step up soon, I'm going to be forced to move on. I need answers or I am doomed. And it seems that fear it seems that often this, this response is our chosen path. And what does God's word say? He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord as it is for you. What does Hezekiah do? Well, the story moves on. And we move from an impossible situation to a desperate plea. And the remainder of our time is going to move much more quickly, so don't worry, this isn't going to be a three-hour message. We move to desperate plea. Let's take a look at verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messenger, and he read it. He went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. He didn't reach out to a general. He didn't call an emergency staff meeting with his trusted advisors. He didn't reach out to Egypt. He didn't start scrambling for allies. He didn't look to bolster his defenses. He didn't run for the hills. No, Hezekiah took the letter and he spread it before the Lord. And he prayed. He prayed. He got on his face before God and he poured his heart out to God. Church, how often do we overlook the strategy when we're faced with intense trials? How often do we, do we ignore this strategy of prayer when we're faced with desperate 
situations. You know, for me, I often pursue God after I have failed in my own strength and have hopelessly mucked things up. Okay, I've got this idea in my mind that I need to get involved and fix it. I need to get my hands into the mess and, and, and orchestrate a solution because that's what husbands do. That's what godly husbands do. Godly husbands get on their face before God. They lead from their knees. They have a heart that says, God, I want you to lead out here. I'm desperate for you. It doesn't matter how, how big or how small the problem. I lost my keys. Well, guess what? I need to get on my knees before God. Because God knows exactly where those keys are. For the most desperate situations, the sickness seems sovereign control of my life. For whatever reason, I falsely think that control brings comfort. I'm quick to forget that the Lord is the one who grants the strength to accomplish all things. I'm reluctant to admit my own inadequacy to solve my problem. I'm quick to say, I got this, God. I'm on it. I'm on it. The result, well, epic fail. Fourthly, for Hezekiah, this is not his fate. The scriptures say that Hezekiah prayed. And for sake of time, we're not going to read the passage. But he pleaded with God on the basis of his character. And let's take a look at the prayer, okay? Just, just to, to highlight some of the events in this prayer, some of the things that, that entered his heart. First of all, he addresses the Lord as the Lord of hosts, enthroned above the cherubim. Those are his words. And in addressing him as such, he is recognizing God Almighty's absolute authority over the armies of both earth and heaven. There is no army big enough to conquer you, God. You're the Lord of hosts. Sennacherib's faith in his own military might is misplaced as God, the God of the universe, held his heart in the very palm of his hand. And God was orchestrating the events of this situation, not Sennacherib. Dude, you're not calling the shots. The Lord of hosts, enthroned above the cherubim. Secondly, he acknowledges his creative power also in verse 16. You have made heaven and earth. God, the very details of the universe, you've sculpted with the word of your power. You form the light. You create darkness. You bring peace. You create calamity. You, the Lord, do all these things, Isaiah 45. God, you are the creator of my present distress. Think about that for a minute. God has a plan for your life. He has a recipe for, for your ultimate glorification. That recipe includes some bitter herbs as well as peace, right? It includes elements that might be seen as painful or harmful, yet when mixed together perfectly by the master creator, God, he brings about a work in your life that is all together good. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God, you alone hold the keys to my deliverance. God, I know you're bringing it. I know you're bringing it. And you're bringing it because you want me close to your heart. Next, he pleads with God to incline his ear. Verse 17. Now, this is not likely Isaiah calling God to a greater level of awareness. He's not thinking that God is just listening. But rather, he's petitioning God to move on what is happening to the nation of Judah. They're in a position of extreme peril. Assyria had laid waste to the nations and their lands, verse 18. They've cast their gods into the fire. These nations have failed God. 
because they were not followers of Jesus. Their hearts were far from the God who saved them. We love you. Save us from his hand that the kingdom of the world might know that you alone are God in heaven. We need you, God. Without you, we are just like the other nations, doomed to fail. Please, God, intervene. Step up. You know, it's here at the point of desperation that we see our final heading this morning. We see God's miraculous intervention. Let's take a look, starting in verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. Talking about Israel. Israel despising Assyria. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughters of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Assyria. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you've mocked the Lord. And you have said with many chariots, I've gone up against the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest heights, its most fruitful forests. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up the sole of my foot and all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I return to the land of the dead? I planned from the days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crack to the tips of ruins, while their inhabitants, scorn and strength, are, are dismayed and confounded, have become like plants of the field, like, like tender grass, like the grass of the housetop, blighted before it's grown. I know you're sitting down. You're going up. You're coming in. You're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, Assyria, and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose, my bit in your mouth. I will turn you back from the way by which you came. And this will be a sign for you, Israel. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from that. In the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root and bear fruit upward, for out of Jerusalem will go a remnant, out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before with a shield, or cast up a siege mount against it by the way that he came, by the same hill of Hermon. He shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own name's sake and for the sake of my servant David. How does God answer his prayer? He says, I got this, man. I got it. It's not you they're mocking, it's me. Sennacherib's heart has raged against me in his foolishness. He failed to acknowledge the almighty hand of God. Therefore, I'm going to treat him like an obstinate beast. I'm going to put a ring in his nose, a bit in his mouth, and I am going to lead him back in a shameful march from the direction from which he came. Fear not, Hezekiah. The Lord of hosts is in your corner. Verse 35, I will defend this city to save it for my own name's sake and for the sake of my servant David. I promised it. I'm going to show up. So how does the story end as we wrap up our time? How does it end for Hezekiah and the nation of Syria? What did the zeal of the Lord of hosts accomplish on that fateful day? The answer to this question is found in the final few verses of this chapter. 
It says this, the angel of the Lord went out. He struck down 185,000 men in the field of Hosea. In the marketplace. The people who worked with a grisly scene. Carnage everywhere. And they witnessed the hand of Almighty God. What does God do in impossible situations? He sweeps in in a mighty way. And he brings the enemies to their knees. So that he alone is seen as Almighty God, the Lord of hosts. Enthroned in heaven. And Sennacherib, well, this foolish king who sought to mock the living God, he returns home in verse 37. And while worshiping in the house of Misrach, his God, he was killed at the hands of his son. So let me ask you a question as we wrap up our time here this morning. I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team up. As we wrap up our time this morning, what insurmountable trials are you facing? What are you sitting in the midst of right now? Maybe it's family. Maybe that resonates the most clearly with you. Maybe it's husband-wife relationship. Maybe it's kids. Maybe it's maybe it's parenting issues of a different sort. You're sorting through 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 decisions regarding school and curriculum and, and all of that. Maybe these things are bogging you down. Maybe it's financial freedom. Maybe you're crushed and crippled under the weight of finances. And you're scrambling, you're saying, God, I don't know how we're going to make ends meet. You know, for, for probably two years, my wife, my wife and I had to make it with, with, with negative disposable income every month. And we, we looked at each other every month and said, how is this going to happen, God? But until I was willing to say, God, you've created the bills. I know you're going to pay them. So I'm just going to pick up my feet and say, if you're going to show up, you're going to be there. And guess what he did? Every single morning, I'm looking at in a miraculous way, I can tell you story after story after story after story after story. When God shows up, the powerful thing. Maybe it's career. Maybe it's relational. Maybe that's the gut feeling that you're in the midst of this morning. Maybe it's missional challenges. On what have you been relying for deliverance? Your own futile efforts or the hands of the Almighty Lord of hosts.